Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. here and welcome to this week's episode of Idle Chatter from the Farm Machinery Digest. Some people call me the Hot Rod Farmer and uh, you could call me uh, whatever you like. Actually, believe it or not, I have two nicknames. Uh, My family's nickname for me was Butch because my dad's name is also Ray and my wife's nickname for me is Ox, O-X. And the reason for that being when I met Charlotte, I met her on a blind date, and then when I eventually, um, when I went the first time over to meet her family, I told her mother that my name is Bo Hacks, and my wife's maiden name was Clark, which was very simple, and her mother said, Bo Ox? What kind of name is that? So, uh, so I said, no, no, it's Bo Hacks, but anyway, over time, uh, it, oh, Bo Ox very quickly went to Ox, and endearingly, my mother-in-law, who's passed away, um, used to always call me Ox, so lots of times my wife calls me Ox, so uh, you could call me Ox, you could call me Ray, you could call me Hot Rod, you could call me whatever you like. So listen, thank you so much uh, for joining me today in this podcast and listening. I greatly, greatly appreciate it, because th- it is nothing without you. If without you listening, it would be like uh, SETI, like sending message, messages into outer space. So I greatly appreciate that uh, you take the time to listen to the podcast and to also visit the FarmMachineryDigest.com website. And I just want to uh, give a little plug for that because there's a lot of information up there, not because it's mine, but there's a lot of good information. And uh, I just... Uh, hope and wish that you uh, take the time to look it over, explore the different areas and read some stories, listen to some of the uh, audio under the lecture hall series. I actually have uh, technical stories that are recorded. They are three to five minute technical stories and you could listen to them while you're working or driving or in a machine or what have you. And then we also have the learning series, which are magazine stories, magazine-style stories, technical stories. And then we also have getting to know. And the getting to know is the application-specific, for instance, about the uh, General Motors Duramax, early Duramax engine. So if you go there and click on those, they're under the Learn tab, it'll be self-explanatory. And I know it'll bring you a lot of value. And also keep in mind that what you may not be interested in today, you maybe will be interested in tomorrow because you have metaphorically tomorrow because you have a problem with something and you could say hey you know, I saw that on the Farm Machinery Digest uh, website and let me go look at that so that's why I always 
suggest for people to just spend a few minutes and look around on what's on there. Currently, there's about 40 learning series magazine stories, and I think 9 or 10 lecture hall, and 4 or 5 uh, getting to know series. And also, I'd like to invite you to take the toolbox test every month. There's a, a test, new test every month, and if you uh, take that test and submit your answers, not only will you get the correct answers back, and it's not it's it's not meant to to embarrass anyone. That's I mean I don't even know who took it. I would like to get it as an email address back, and it's not meant to embarrass anyone. It's meant for you to learn, and it's important for for everyone to realize that you know if you take a test. The real test in life is going into the shop and fixing something that's not on the computer screen. So if you learn something from it and it brings value to you and helps you in the shop down the road, then that's what that's all about. And also, everybody who takes the test is in a drawing. Uh, once a month, I will be giving away a USA-made Hot Rod Farmer t-shirt with the logo on the front and a uh, very special logo on the back. So take those tests and take them, take them often as you like, and it'll, you'll be entered into the drawing. In the first week of the month, I will uh, randomly choose someone and then contact them through email. Of course, I will have your email address from the test, and then get your mailing address and your size and send you out that T-shirt, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. I'll enjoy sending it to you. But what today's podcast is going to be about... I am calling it Farm Shop Forensics. Uh, a number of years back on television, they had a whole bunch of shows come out, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, and they had one, and then, like most things, if one is good, I guess a lot is better, right? So they had 27,000 of them. I mean, I'm being ridiculous. CSI Miami, CSI this, CSI Las Vegas. But regardless, it was quite interesting, and they were based upon forensics, and as you all know, and studying the crime scene and using, this, using the... Um, the data from the crime scene and the clues that they find to solve the mystery and really what we need to do is we you know that needs to be done in the farm shop and what i'm talking about is that within the engineering community there is a there is a this i'll use the word discipline it's not really a discipline an area of study but it's it's almost like a sub area and it's called failure analysis and everybody who is in engineering and makes a product, whether it's a car, an engine, a tractor, what have you, of anything of any magnitude, goes through a failure analysis study. And what they'll basically do is they'll put something out into the field. And first they'll do their, their laboratory testing, and then it goes from the lab out into the test track, and from the test track out into the field, and what have you. But um, And when something fails, they will come back and study why it failed and to stop that problem or eradicate that problem is probably a proper way for me to say it and they don't just say oh well okay it broke and move on so they do what's called failure analysis and i think that's very important you know we do that with crops we'll go out into the field and if we have uh, a condition going on or we have a lack of yield i mean with crops obviously the yield is not till after you harvest but you know you go backwards and look you know what went right what went wrong you know was it a, was it a nature thing was it mother nature that the good lord didn't give us enough rain or too much rain and not enough sunny days or or what have you or was it something that that you could have really manipulated and work with and that's why you've had that failure 
investment usually in a crop it's not a complete failure that's obviously usually a weather condition that's out of our hands but as time goes on and we learn more about how plants grow we're able to uh, mitigate some of that uh, that exposure to weather through drought tolerant crops and what have you or having a better stand of crops that could uh, that won't lodge and fall over so easily in a windstorm so we're able to actually minimize that exposure but that's really in a way is akin to a failure analysis and we need to when something fails on a piece of equipment we need to look why it failed and sometimes things just wear out. I'm not going to deny that. Sometimes things just wear out and that's fine. But we can't just assume that every failure on a piece of equipment is that it just wore out. We need to actually to institute a protocol and do some CSI, some farm shop CSI, and uh, look at the f uh, why that component or part failed. Right, so I just hit my, if you heard that, I just hit my watch on the desk. That's not good. But anyway, <coughs> I want to start with a little story also, is that you know, within, within the engineering community, along with failure analysis, there's a, a mindset or a protocol called the Technology Execution Theorem. And I spoke about this at Commodity Classic on the main stage in podcast number three. I gave a little overview of one of the topics I discussed on the main stage. I was sponsored by Firestone and Successful Farming at both San Antonio and this past year in Anaheim. But what, you, what technology slash execution. So if something fails, we need to look at whether the technology is bad or whether the execution was poor. And in engineering, we do that. So if we go out and we test something and it doesn't work out well, we have to stop and look and say, was the technology poor or was the execution poor? And what I mean by that, the simplest analogy, and this is the one I used at Commodity Classic, the simplest analogy is think of lugs holding a wheel onto a car. So let's say arguably you're going into town and you're riding into town and you see a car off on the side of the road and there's a person standing outside the car looking down with, with disgust and the wheel fell off the car. Thankfully no one got hurt, the wheel fell off the car so you stop to see if you could help them and the person says, I don't understand what happened, I just had tires put on the car, new tires and I was going down the road and I heard bang, 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 bang and boom, the wheel came crashing off and uh, there it is in the ditch and the car is laying on the brake rotor. So now we have to stop and say, well, how is a wheel held on to a, to a uh, spindle? It's held on with lugs. So now is the technology to hold a wheel on to a spindle with lugs poor, or was the execution poor? So now if we think about it, there are millions and millions and millions of vehicles all around the world, probably more than millions of vehicles, riding around and they have lugs, hold, lug nut holding the wheel onto the stud and their wheels are not falling off. So we know that the technology of holding a wheel onto a stud with a lug is not faulted. In this particular instance, the poor person on the side of the road that you stopped to help the execution was faulted that the mechanic did not tighten the lug nuts. So that is the technology execution theorem that you need to look at each, and you need to do this on your farm. I mean, if you were to put, let's say, a fungicide on, and you put a fungicide on, or um, let me not use a fungicide. Let's say you used a, uh, a pre-emergence pre weed killer. 
And I know an owl farm for our crop, we now use Acuron by Syngenta, and I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, th it's a three pre system, so I believe it's group 5, 15, and 27. And uh, it's very, very effective. But it'll tell you right on the label that it needs to have some rain to make it effective. Uh, and if it's not, if it doesn't get the moisture, I think they say between an inch and two inches or within seven to ten days that its effectiveness ramps down dramatically. So if I spray Acuron and it doesn't rain for three weeks and I have weed escapes, was the technology of that product poor? No, the technology was not poor. The, uh, the execution, well, not necessarily my execution, but we didn't get what was needed, we didn't get the rain. And then the converse of that is that, you know, let's say we're going to go back to the wheel analogy. Let's say we're going to try to hold the wheel onto the stud with a washer and a paper clip. And we go five feet down the road and the wheel falls off. Well, then we know that that technology was poor, not the execution. We may have put the paper clip in properly. We may have made it nice and tight, but it couldn't hold the load of the wheel onto the stud. So the reason why I'm telling you that is that... Oftentimes in life and the farm shop is that it's a mindset, it's a thought process that's going to to decide whether you're successful in that genre or not. And it's a thought process and often you need to think out of the box. Well, get back to my story that I was going to tell you. When I had my, my engine shop, I had a... Um, I got friendly with a service engineer, district service engineer from Ford, Bernie Golick. And if any of you hot rodders out there used to read... Um, Muscle Mustangs and Fast Forwards magazine years ago. They're still in print, but it's not as dynamic as it was. Um, Bernie's car was always on the cover. And his car used to run out of my shop. And Bernie was probably old enough to be my father, a real neat guy, and um, you know, unique in his own ways. And he had this Mustang. And this Mustang was what we would call an evolutionary car. It started out as a street car, then went to a bracket race, drag race car, and then finally, when I got involved with it, it was in this class called Pro 50, and it was it was a it was a uh, fast car for the drag races out there. It was a, a mid eight second car around 160 miles an hour, but it was successful despite itself because everything was wrong because it was an evolutionary car. It was uh, the engine was in the wrong spot. The engine was in the stock location. On a drag car, you'd really want to move the engine back towards the rear so you have better weight transfer on the starting line. So it was in the stock location. It had a ladder bar style suspension, um, which was better than a stock suspension, but not really what you'd wanted. You really needed a four-link suspension to go that fast. But we were able to, to get it to work, but it needed a lot of finesse. It needed a lot of TLC. Then there was a lot of tricks to make it happen. So anyway, we were going to go to this big race down in Florida. It was in September, and there was a big uh, Pro 5.0 shootout race down there. And, and this, this engine in Bernie's car was was what they called a power adder. Almost everybody ran a power adder. There was either forced induction, a turbocharger, or a supercharger, or it was nitrous, nitrous oxide. And this was a nitrous motor. It was an oddball combination. It was a 355 cubic inch Ford, so that was more of a bore and stroke combination you'd be familiar with with a Chevrolet engine, and it had you know great parts on it, had Yates cylinder heads, NASCAR Yates heads, it had um, 
great valve train, what have you, and a real big shot of nitrous. On the, what we would call on the motor alone, it was about, I think it was about 800 horsepower, and then it used to have about another seven to 800 horsepower on what we would call the vernacular be spray, on spray, so it was about a 15, 1600 horsepower piece altogether when everything was right, and we had all the, uh, the nitrous, which the slang would be the juice going into it. So anyway, so we go to Florida, and we were running a lot of nitrous, and this was in the early stages of, of the industry running a lot of nitrous. And what happened was that Bernie, and it was a programmable fuel injection system through digital fuel injection that controlled the nitrous and the whole engine. And Bernie would always, it had three stages of nitrous, so it would keep adding more and more nitrous as the car went down the track. And then ultimately, so basically it only made the 1500 horsepower, let's say, for the last maybe 300 feet of the track. And that was just to control traction because the suspension wasn't what it should be. But Bernie always used to make the first pass, the qualifying pass, with one stage of nitrous. And the car, let's say, go 890s. So that meant if it went 890s on that mathematically, it should have gone 820s on the two stages. So all three together. And then we never had that happen. And then Bernie would start to play with the calibration, play with the tuning, and this and that. So anyway, so we did this typical Bernie routine. And like I said, he was old enough to be my father, so you couldn't tell him anything. It's like farming. Racing with an older guy is like farming with, a, with your father. Forget about it. It's his way or the highway. And you just keep your mouth shut and bite your tongue and fall in line like a good soldier. So anyway, so we get, we get into this final round, and there were these guys from... Miami, and they had a, uh, there was a good running car also, good running Mustang, it was a carbureted Mustang, but we should have been able to take them based upon what we saw in qualifying, and what happens is uh, our car leaves, hits about the 500 foot mark, noses over, and just blows black smoke down the track, and the other car goes right by us, and we went all the way to Florida, and we lost uh, in the finals, and the reason why we lost in the finals was that we did not understand the pressure flow relationship of the nitrous bottle. The, um, when you're running a lot of nitrous, subsequently the industry has found out that it's like a hydraulic system. It's a pressure flow relationship. So even though we monitored the bottle pressure, we did not have the flow. And we would, and when, and when Bernie would do his first run, the car would never go faster when we added the second, this, that was the important part, I forgot to tell you, it would never go faster when we added the two stages, and that's why he would play with the calibration. So it went just as fast on one stage of nitrous as three, and that's because ultimately the edge was coming off the bottle, then the bottle had pressure but no flow. So we did not do a proper failure analysis. What we basically did is we were ch burning, was changing things, changing the timing, changing the fuel delivery, changing the calibration, changing all the settings. And the real problem was that we did not have enough flow out of the nitrous bottle because it was a pressure flow dynamics, which we did not understand. And, and you know, to our own defense, the industry didn't understand it either. So it was it was something when we started to run just as much nitrous as you did uh, horsepower in the engine initial uh, without it is that it came up with a whole bunch of different issues and you know the same thing happens on the farm you're pushing your yield you know at 500 bushels per acre you're going to find a different weak link in the chain than you would at 200 bushels per acre and that's you know basically the same thing happens you know with with building engines so anyway so why do you need to do failure analysis. And as I said earlier in the podcast, when something fails, you need to actually look at why did it fail. Now, 
you there are things that wear out I'm not going to deny that there's things that wear out but even when something wears out there'll be a forensic aspect of it you could say well geez you know this kind of wore out a little bit prematurely I should have gotten a thousand hours out of this bearing and I only got 500 you know an, an immediate catastrophic failure that's usually something that really waves a flag and you and you look for a problem but if something is supposed to last a thousand hours and you get 500 hours out of it then you kind of say these oh well I guess like you write it off and you just move on and then you could constantly have that same issue so you need to study why something has failed and you need to look for certain signs and one of the signs that you need to look for is or the way you look for it is that you need to study the part and for instance let's say if you're replacing a gasket and you're taking the old gasket off you need to study this old gasket and look for what we would call the gasket impression and that would be where the two surfaces would meet and then and it'll leave it'll leave an impression because it'll be akin almost to like compacted soil in a field in a traffic area that you'll be able you could see very easily where the, the grain cart rides and where the tractor rides and you know when you take a gasket off you would you should be able to see the compression area and the compression area if you look at it sideways should be you know pretty much uniform if you really want to get anal you could use a um, a veneer caliper and measure it and nine chances out of ten if you have a leaky gasket and the gasket did not just deteriorate over time but it was a leaky gasket or a problematic gasket that always leaks uh, is or tends to weep is because that sealing surface area is not even and you will see that in the compression of the gasket another thing that's very common is that a lot of people don't understand this about about drive belts I don't care whether it's what we used to call a fan belt years ago on an engine there's really no fans anymore they're electric but accessory drive belt or some sort of rubber drive belt and this could be on a on any piece of equipment that uses a drive belt whenever you take a drive belt off for some reason and you're going to put it back into service if you're going to take it and replace it and throw it in the garbage it makes no difference but if you're going to put it back into service then before taking it off you need to either use a paint pen or something that's going to be permanent and mark that belt for the direction of rotation and let me explain to you why the direction that that belt when it's running on that piece of equipment is going to have a load put on it and that load is going to stress or not stress it's going to stretch the molecular structure in a certain way and if you put that belt back on the other way backwards so it's not inside out it's backwards and it's against its direction of rotation it's going to stretch it's going to experience almost immediate um, a large amount of stress and or fail usually it stretches and then falls off and you say to yourself why did this belt fall off and all the all the bolts are tight and everything it's because you put it on the wrong way and the molecular structure was used to running the other way and it stretched excessively and it fell off so if you have a belt that you had just put back into service and it falls off and all the fast and all the pivot point bolts are tight or fail shortly thereafter it's because you put it on in the wrong direction it's opposite direction of rotation so it's very simple what you need to do is before you take a belt off if you're going to reinstall it mark with an arrow the direction of rotation I usually like to do 
is take a paint pen and depending upon where the belt is on the piece of equipment I used I like to make it put an app put a few arrows on it with a white paint pen that are facing towards me so my natural position when they work on the piece of equipment the arrow would be facing towards me and then I would know that that's the way the belt goes back on so that's very very important you know we're getting into harvest now and you could put you know something could happen you throw you put a belt on a combine and or you take the belt off for some reason and you put it back on you throw it on the, on the ground in the field and it's not marked and you uh, throw it back you put it back on and I throw it back on uh, and you go start the harvest and all of a sudden it kicks the belt off of the belt breaks I and mean, that's that's no fun in the middle of the field so that's something <coughs> that you need to keep in mind if you don't have a uh, a paint pen or something available at that time most belts will still have some semblance of their part number or brand writing on it and then i make note of that so if i know that when it's on the piece of equipment that the brand writing was opposite to me when i faced the equipment to work on it then i know that that's the way to put it back on so however you want to mark it, that's fine, however you want to identify it, but in-service belt that is uh, being reinstalled needs to be put back in its direction of rotation. That's failure analysis. You can't just say, oh man, why, why did the belt fall off? If all the bolts are tight and none of the pivot points moved and the belt fall off and was tight originally, then you need to know why, otherwise you're going to have that repeated failure, because you have a 50-50 chance of putting it on wrong again also. The other thing I want to talk to you about is electric in-tank fuel pumps. And I don't care what type of vehicle, equipment, machine, whether it's your wife's car or your pickup truck, whether it's a, a, a piece of farm equipment, whether it's a UTV or what have you, but any in-tank electric fuel pump uses the, the fuel as a coolant. And if you are the type of person that always runs around with a quarter of a tank, an eighth of a tank of fuel in that in that piece of equipment, that machine, what have you, in that fuel tank, then what is going to happen is that that electric fuel pump over time is going to to reach very high operating temperatures, what we call in engineering is thermal excursions, because the fuel is meant to be a coolant. So the way the system is designed is for you to fill the tank up and then run the tank down. You could run it down to almost empty and then fill it back up again because the amount of duty cycle, the amount of time that it is running with it exposed, mostly exposed and not bathed in the fuel is, is not that long. But for somebody who's the you know the person who's always running around with a quarter of a tank of fuel in their in their vehicle, and then that is the application that will constantly start to go through fuel pumps, because the thermal excursion it's going to get very hot and it's always running without the coolant around it. So if you have a vehicle or an engine I'll say it's it's hard I keep saying the two things because as you know the whole premise I'm, as an aside to this with the farm machinery digest is that you know I talk about everything that's on the farm I don't care whether it's your pickup truck whether your lawnmower whether your combine your hay bind your sprayer your tractor what have you and you know these things that I'm talking about specifically in this podcast are generic to anything with an engine any type of piece of equipment they're not just not just something that's an application specific to a farm so if you have or you know somebody who has a propensity to to keep burning up fuel pumps well 
that's really the reason failure analysis on this particular point the failure analysis would prove that the person is always having that pump run at an elevated temperature by having a minimal amount of of fuel in the tank and not having the cooling effect of it also you know keep in mind that in the same in the same uh, the same theory as far as uh, using a liquid as a coolant is that a lot of people don't realize this but you know obviously an engine is cooled 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 with a liquid you know we call it antifreeze but it's actually the proper name is a coolant and a lot of people don't realize that the engine oil is also a coolant and though it's not pumped through the water jackets but the engine oil on any engine is meant to pull heat out of the components mainly the crankshaft and the bearings and if you have engine oil that is very diluted or very thin, it doesn't have the molecular structure to pull heat out of those components and runs off of them too quickly to have a good degree of thermal transfer, and they run hotter. Uh, on most engines today that are, that are that are worth their salt, and specifically heavy-duty applications, actually have oil-cooled pistons. And what they'll do is that they'll shoot oil on the bottom of the piston from a hole in the... Uh, wrist pin area and it'll use that as a coolant to cool the piston crown and most uh, production engines say even in cars like the Ford EcoBoost engines in the uh, pickup trucks and SUVs those have all oil cooled pistons so the oil is a coolant and so if the oil is degraded and all the oil is low then actually those components you cannot see that on the temperature gauge but those components will be actually running at an elevated temperature and then over time will suffer an excessive amount of wear I mean it's not going to happen overnight it's just like you know if you don't feel feel good tonight and you go to bed without brushing your teeth you're not going to wake up tomorrow with cavities then if you you know don't brush your teeth for two days you're not, your teeth aren't going to fall out but over time that you will have dental problems and the same thing happens with an engine so if you're running um, low on oil or the oil is very thin it got thinned out from dilution with fuel then that's going to have a effect on all of the parts that it is intended to cool the other thing I want to talk to you about some just basic things for failure analysis is that head gaskets and you know head gaskets don't die they are murdered and there's two ways you can murder a head gasket and the, the two ways you murder a head gasket is number one is that you cook the motor you overheat it and number two is that you do not maintain the coolant and the additive package in the coolant and, and this is for gasoline and or diesel engines if um, the reason why it's called coolant is because it has a whole mixture of different chemical components in it for anti-corrosion inhibitors um, it has uh, anti-foaming agents and a whole bunch of different things and on today's engines there is a multitude of different materials and there's there's plastics there's different composites there's aluminums there's different grades of aluminum a lot of uh, diesel engines today are uh, composite blocks or uh, so is a whole different there's a whole different chemical I'm trying to not get to I don't want to get off on a tangent with this and uh, go off into left field but the thing is that uh, it's what you need to understand it's not like it was years ago everything was cast iron I mean there's all different types of head gaskets and that is why all of the manufacturers have their own for for most 
purposes have their own blend of coolants and because they have the additive package that will work with those materials that are in that engine and that's why with those coolants that they'll say hey you know we we want you to use this coolant in it and that's simply because that additive package will will not attack anything that's in an engine but if you are a person that is not good with changing the coolant on any engine like I said gasoline to diesel from your from your passenger car all the way up to your biggest piece of farm equipment the the coolant the additive package will become negated over time from the thermal cycles and from the heating and cooling and then it will end up attacking the head gasket and any gasket that it comes in contact with so nine chance 9.9 .9 chances out of 10 if you told me that you have an engine and it popped the head gasket on it and it wasn't something where you over boosted let's say on a you put a tuner in, tuner in, you turned up the boost to 40 pounds, when it's supposed to be 20, and you didn't cook it, that's, I'll tell you, it's because you didn't change the coolant. It's plain and simple. The coolant uh, actually ended up attacking the head gasket. So keep in mind, failure analysis is that if, and that's why I also like to do, and even in the podcast I spoke uh, podcast number three I spoke about fluid analysis is that you know for $25 you could get a, a coolant analysis of $25-$30 an in-service coolant analysis and that'll tell you if something is starting to go south on that engine you know and I didn't get a chance to say it in the other podcast but you know something that frustrates I, I shouldn't say frustrates me it's the wrong word but something that you know I couldn't understand you know people there's a big market and I understand why in purchasing pre-owned equipment but specifically at an auction you know and I see these you know like on Dave Mowitz does on successful farming uh, and he does those auction uh, those auction sales and you know these people are spending two three hundred thousand dollars for a piece of equipment hundred thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars for a piece of equipment I mean before I did that you know I, I would want to go in and and a week ahead of time and pull an oil analysis and cooled analysis on it because if you don't I mean if you if there's something hiding in there I mean that's expensive and you would want to you wouldn't want to find that out after the fact but anyway so if somebody was not good with the um, coolant you will eat a head gasket it'll actually start to deteriorate the head gasket and then the that head gasket will usually blow uh, at the highest temperature point and then you'll end up uh, pulling that motor apart so that's failure analysis for that another thing to keep in mind that almost every engine and I don't can't think of one that isn't that if you pull that cylinder off to change that head gasket you need to put new head bolts in there and that's another thing failure analysis people pull a head gasket off an engine they re they reuse the old bolts and the gasket fails again shortly thereafter and you know that's it gets back to the technology execution theorem you know was it a good technology and a poor execution it was a poor execution and the reason why you need to replace the head bolts is because they do stretch and they do stretch very slightly and then even though you torque them they're uh, actually not in the proper range so it's a false torque reading and then the bolt stretches and the head lifts up a little bit under cylinder pressure and all it has to do is lift up once or twice and it pops the head gasket so as I bring this show to a close today I only gave you these examples and what I'm trying to just say to you and and hopefully I was successful at drilling that point home 
is that when you work on something in the shop don't just think it wore out and it may very well have worn out but just like but just like you would go into your field and say hey what's going on with this crop doing a tissue analysis soil sampling you know um, doing all different types of testing when you have to look at something and say well why did this wear out why did this or did this wear out prematurely and if it wasn't didn't wear out prematurely if it was a catastrophic failure you need to try to do your best to find the smoking gun and if you don't find that smoking gun then most likely that failure is going to happen very shortly thereafter you made the repair or changed the part and that's very very common with like centrifugal pumps that are experiencing cavitation and the pump goes bad and the person doesn't take it apart and look inside and see that it's being cavitated and they put the new pump on and then because it's got a restriction in the flow line or the uh, pressure line it cavitates and shortly thereafter the new pump fails and then that's no no fun nobody's nobody's happy with that the the person who sold you the pump nor you who are you know in the shop fixing something we're supposed to be spraying fungicide on your crop so word to the wise failure analysis and on on, um, I'm going to be doing future podcasts on failure analysis on on uh, some specific components but to get quickly to our uh, special delivery section. I have a letter here that came to me actually from a uh, a viewer that watches me on a successful farming TV show and and let me see uh, and his name is Mike and he's from Coldwater, Kansas and he says we have a 2018 Ford F-350 with the 6.7 diesel engine that we use on the ranch. Idles a lot and in pasture a lot on changing the air filter element is it proper to go by the air restriction gauge some of the mechanics are saying it needs changing more often what are your recommendations enjoy your spots on successful farming tv well thank you very much uh greatly appreciate you watching me on tv and and hopefully catching this podcast um but those airflow restriction gauges are very accurate and they actually do measure the pressure differential going through that filter and you know even though the filter may look dirty uh, it's actually measuring that that is accurate as long as the caveat being is that that the gauge is not stuck or broken so given the fact that it's a 2018 truck that I would say that the gauge is very good and uh, there's no problem with that and and I would go by the gauge at one particular point. I would start to, the gauge is, it's, it is a gauge, so it's going to be linear. It's not, it's, or I should say linear, it's going to be analog. It's going to move. It's not going to be digital. So if you start to see the restriction coming up, uh, that it's not as free-flowing as it was before, then you may want to take the filter out and shake the dirt out of it and put it back in service. But to answer your question, at this particular point for what you do with the vehicle, on the ranch and it's a 2018 truck that I would look I would take that gauge readings as the gospel and until it proves otherwise and maybe when you have 30 or 40,000 miles on that truck well let's say 20,000 miles pull that filter out and look at it and then use it as a tool in your toolbox meaning the combination of what your mind tells you and what that gauge tells you but I would definitely trust that gauge those gauges have been used in farm equipment and on uh, big diesel engines and all different applications with great success um, 
unless uh, obviously you see the plastic is cracked and the uh, the little disc in there is cockeyed, then I wouldn't <laughs> then I wouldn't trust it. But I don't think that's the case. So to answer your question concisely, yes, I do trust that gauge, and you know you could go by that and save the money and not keep changing the, the filter all the time. Alrighty. So listen, thank you so much for listening. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'm hoping you guys go over and take a toolbox test and get into the drawing for the T-shirt every month. And I want you to know that the uh, that the hot rod farmer here is pulling for America and her farmers. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And hopefully you'll be able to listen next week.